This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players at Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. The Bass Freaks podcast is a place to gain some insight and inspiration, as well as learn a little something about some truly awesome bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today's guest is Jonas Helborg. Now, Jonas is an amazing bassist from Sweden who's worked with some of the biggest names in rock, jazz, and Indian music, from John McLaughlin, Bill Laswell, Bernie Worrell, to Tony Williams, Ginger Baker, and Buckethead. So... All that being said, Jonas, welcome to the yeah. Bass Freaks podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. How are you? Number one. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Okay. No, no complaints. You're in Sweden right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Great. we've been living here now for the last four years. And Beautiful. Pretty much in splendid isolation in the forest. Oh. Yeah. We have an old, what used to be a mental asylum. Oh, really? Yeah, that we have converted into a living space, and it's 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 all forest around us, and it's a huge, huge oh. house, lo- lots of space. And well, I wish I could see quiet. pictures because I yeah. my vivid imagination is going crazy right now. All right, so Jonas, let's talk about uh, some of the early years. How did you become a bass player? How did you start? Oh, actually, it was. Uh, <laughs> In school, a friend of mine asked if I played bass, and I said yes, because I thought it sounded cool. <laughs> so you no, never played no, so I, no, so before I went, that? Uh, I, I got myself a bass, and I went to our first rehearsal, and I asked him, well, so what are we going to play? Uh, this Hendrix song, Up From The Skies. And, uh, uh, oh, okay. I don't know that one. Can you show me how it goes? And he showed me the bass line, and, that was, uh, and I was playing bass. That's, <laughs> that's where it started. Wow. Who were some of your earliest influences? Um, well, I, I guess I have to say Jack Bruce. If oh, anybody, if yeah. anybody had any kind of uh, direct influence and uh, and kind of showed me what it was to play bass, that was it. I was into Cream a lot when I was like 12, 12 years old. So. What was it about Jack that? that really drew you to him? I don't know. It, that was, it was sort of like this, that the, the, the two things that I liked uh, in music was Jimi Hendrix and The Cream. And uh, that was how you played bass with The Cream, I guess. That's, that was it. I, I didn't really think about it much. It was just, yeah. And then uh, uh, after a little while, I got into different things, like, for instance, Mahavishnu, John McLaughlin and that. And uh, there was a group called Backdoor with a bass player called Colin Hodgkinson. That uh, okay. I was, I'm not oh, familiar with. He's Colin is, uh, is amazing. He's the first person I ever heard play chord on bass. Ooh, and this okay. was uh, maybe early, really early 70s. And he, he was a great, great inspiration and a great influence on me. Did you, when you first grabbed the bass, did you know that was what you wanted to do? Or was it just kind of a, 
hobby type thing or when was the moment? No, no I, I think pretty much immediately I was convinced that I was going to be a musician and I, and I was a bass player. It, it was no, there's no hesitation or no consideration of doing anything else really. Amazing. I mean, I, I did, I did a bunch of acting as a kid also, but uh, Me too. I didn't take, yeah. We're, twi yeah, we're twinsies. We're twins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, were you yeah. in any shows or anything? No, yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I was doing uh, radio theater and I was doing several TV series in Sweden and uh, How, now I'm going to have to go do I, a deep dive and look you up. Yeah, <laughs> it was actually, actually some serious things there, but, but I didn't take it seriously. It was just like a way to get money to buy, buy equipment. Got it. Got it. My, my, my mom was an actress and that's how I got into it. So. Oh, great. Okay. So, so you, when they needed a kid, needed a kid actor, they asked one of the actors if they had any kids that could act, and, and I got a bunch of gigs like that. That's awesome. Have you done any more acting since? No, no. Okay, I I stopped. You retired? Yeah, yeah I retired already. <laughs> about eighteen. Oh, uh, so you stepped uh, on the international scene in a huge way with. Uh, my Vishnu Orchestra yeah. at a, at a yeah. pretty young age. How old were you? I wasn't that young. I think oh, I must have been like early 20s somewhere, okay. 20, 20, 22, 23, 24, something like that. How did that come about and what was it like working with John McLaughlin and, and the orchestra? Oh, it was, it was, I mean, it was fantastic. It was, um, it was, you know, literally a dream come true because I, from from age fourteen and fifteen, I was totally into Mahavishnu, and I I was learned all that music and uh, and uh, the way it came about was that I was actually quite disillusioned with the whole whole effort to become a musician. Be I was playing with some bands in Sweden, you know, touring nationally, and uh, but it didn't lead anywhere, and it was really hard to to make a living okay. in Sweden. So I, I I started doing solo concerts and I, I got some some radio gigs, radio show gigs, and sent one of them to the Montreux Jazz Festival. And they responded and said, "Oh, great! It sounds fantastic. Come and play." And, uh, and so I went to Montreux and played, and uh, created a little bit of a buzz. And Michael Brecker heard about me, and. Uh, and he arranged a little concert, a private concert for me, playing uh, for you know five, six, seven super jazz superstars. Oh, how nerve wracking was that? A little bit, a little bit indeed. <laughs> but, uh, but I realized that that was my one single chance of doing something. So I just, uh, I just, yeah, I dug into it and took it seriously and. And played and uh, he loved it and he introduced me to a lot of people and one of the people he introduced me to at Montreux was John McLaughlin and uh, one day he called me and said uh, that he was putting the Mahavishnu Orchestra back together and would I want to be part of it that's and, so crazy yeah, that's a, yeah. yeah this, it was very how long no, then we had uh, maybe five years that uh, we did that with Mahavishnu, we did duets, and then we did a trio with Trilo Gurtu, that he then, after I left, continued with uh, a few other bass players. Jeff Berlin was there for a second, and, okay. and uh, Kai Eckhart and uh, Dominique de Piazza. Wow. How do you think that experience mm -hmm. um, helped you to evolve as a musician, or did it? 
I think one of the great, I mean, the, musically, of course, it was, uh, you know, you just thrown into the water and you have to swim. And, uh, <laughs> and I, had no, I had no clue, actually, how to function in a real super professional environment and, and play with people who are playing on that level. So I, I just had to, I just had to do it. I just had to learn it immediately, like just get into it. And so that musically, of course, it was extremely uh, helpful. I mean, I really learned a lot in those years. But one important thing was that I fulfilled my dream. Absolutely. So it was no. So I was there, and and I had arrived, and then that kind of ambition, that kind of insecurity, just went away. Uh, okay, so so now I can actually. Uh, just play, just make music and be free and not, not be bothered if people like me, don't like me, if I'm famous, not famous, if I'm successful or not successful. It didn't matter after that point because I had done it. Oh. I'd, been on, I'd been on international stages. I played with uh, what I considered the greatest musician on the planet. And, oh, where do you go from there? I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> what, was the, what was the biggest challenge um, being on that gig? Um... I, actually, I don't know. I, I I don't know how to to think about that because, of course, I mean the. I I was well prepared, uh, you know, chops wise and technically, okay. and uh, and uh, I knew the, I knew my theory. My I had studied and I, I knew what to do. I knew how to play. And I, I guess the biggest challenge was just to learn how. How do I fit into this social environment? How do I, how do I behave the right way and do the right thing? And and uh, so you just learn as you go, being in that yeah, situation. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, very much, very much so. All right, okay. And then, and then, then at the, you know, pretty much at the same time or in the middle of that, I, I first of all, I, I connected with uh, Bill Aswell. Oh, nice. Right, and did a, did a bunch of things with with Bill, and uh, and through Bill, I I got to know Ginger Baker, and I started working with Ginger, and that was that's another world, you know. That's uh, and of course, I mean, again, that that was my my idol from from years before that I started listening to Mahavishnu. It was the cream. It was that's another dream come true. Right? How there, amazing too. is that? Two, yeah, to, to two things with, to check to, off the list right off the yeah, bat, it yeah, seems like. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and, and then, of course, Ginger had another whole different um, kind of life. And uh, I mean, he had been on the very, 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 very top of, of rock and roll. And, and he had a totally different life perspective, life experience, uh, philosophy of life and stuff like that. So that was, that was a whole another. How so? amazing amount of, of um, influence and information. What, how, how do you think it was, it was um, what was the contrast? I, I don't know. I, I would say that Ginger was much more of a human being. Okay. You know, he, he was, uh, he was not, also he wasn't really concerned about career or that anymore. He wasn't. He was. He appreciated people. He appreciated animals actually more than people. <laughs> I like it. And, I like uh, it. Yeah. 
And uh, and when the kind the kind of uh, folks they hung with was not musicians, it was not uh, rock stars or famous uh, this or that. It was more carpenters or or bricklayers or farmers or all this. It was very down to earth and very very nice. And but whenever he got kind of uh, pushed into the world of rock and roll of uh, of this big circus, he, he kind of turned into another being. Ah, okay. So you, you know, think the, that the, was because he maybe he was a little less comfortable in that situation? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So just and, uh, very cool, very cool. Um, I know you mentioned uh, Bill Laswell. You want to yeah. talk a little bit about how it was working with, with Bill? Sure, sure. We... Um, uh, we actually got introduced by by Michael Shreve because I did a record with Michael Shreve uh, before I actually started with Mahavishnu. Okay. And uh, and Michael went to work with Bill on uh, the Mick Jagger solo album. Oh, okay. He's on one of the tracks there, and uh, and uh, and he mentioned uh, me, and Bill knew about me and asked. Asked him to get in touch, and when I came to New York with with my vision, I got in touch, and then we, you know, hung out, talked a bit, and he he had some projects that he he let me play on. One of them was the Public Image record album, and another one was a weird project called Deadline, which was a drummer called Philip Wilson, mm. and a bunch of different things, and then. Uh, when I moved to New York, I, I had I had a recording studio in Sweden that I brought with me, uh, like Neve desk and studio tape recorders and, and things like that. Very so cool. uh, so we got together and and opened a space in in um, in Brooklyn and put the studio together there that we had together for. How long were you in New York? Many years. Oh, I I got there around eighty six, eighty seven, and I stayed until uh, ninety three. Okay. Then I moved back to Paris uh, for a long time, and then two thousand one, I was back again until two thousand five. Awesome. That's when I left again. Yeah. Man, you worked with so many great, legendary drummers. Um, uh huh. How did you, or how do you approach working with the different drummers? Um, listen, I guess is the, is the key, key thing. Uh, oddly also for me, it has to do with, uh, with space, with where you place yourself in relation to the, to the drums. I do not like, uh, hearing stuff out of monitors because it, it throws my timing. Ah, okay. Because uh, because I sometimes I I go closer to the bass drum, for instance, to hear to hear to play off the bass drum to, as a timekeeper or as a as an indicator of where the time is. Other times I, I like to be close to the hi hat because at least for many drummers that is really where the time is centered. That's the that's the clock. But um, and also I like to to. Um, maybe play against more than play with no i mean not out of time with but uh, but uh, not necessarily you know doubling the bass drum pattern or or any other kind of thing that happens i more like to fill in the spaces or to 
to frame what the drums are doing. Okay. They'll play it, play around it. Play ar yeah, play around okay. it. You know, like where is where, where is the space for me to put something in? I mean, not like tr totally avoiding where there's a drum beat, but uh, <laughs> but 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 sort of complementing it into uh, into something that uh, becomes bigger and more more interesting. Is that an intentional approach, or is it just something that you feel and always felt, or has it? Yeah, but both, both actually, and it, it actually has a lot to do with uh, with classical composition. And if I mean, if you listen to, for instance, uh, you know Beethoven or Bach or something. And you and you see how the complement is done, how how the bass lines are, you know, they are uh, offsetting the melody. So, so sort of they are putting in what is missing in order to to enhance what the melody is doing, rather than just like creating a very strict rhythmical pattern or 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 beating out the time or or just playing unison or. So, so. Okay, that's very cool. That's interesting. Mm. Who are the um, who are the drummers that you feel have influenced you the most? Ginger for sure. Okay, very very big, and uh, and Tony Williams. Awesome. So Tony is, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's weird to say like favorite drummer because as soon as you say it, you think about somebody else. <laughs> but but. It, but but Tony uh, Tony is definitely one of the biggest influences for me. Is there are, are there any specific reasons or just a whole bag full? Um, well, it is the um, the dynamics, the openness, the the actual playing of musical ideas rather than playing rhythms. Uh, again, not not that it is in any sense it's it's out of time also, but. But it's not rhythmical patterns that repeat endlessly. It is, it is thematic uh, musical composition happening with, with development and variation, and that is what I love about uh, a drummer like like him or Jack Dijonette, for instance, oh, yeah. or Ginger or Ginger for that matter. It, it's this. It's not playing beats. It is uh, actually playing music. Journey. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Very. Cool. And. Uh, yeah, and, and there's something something about Tony's approach and Tony's way of hitting the drums and and uh, yeah, and the openness of it that there, there is he he gives you something and then there's like lots of space to do a ton of stuff within that space that he creates and he doesn't he doesn't lock you down to like okay now I'm playing this beat here and now you can only play within the pyramids of this beat otherwise you're lost but. But he gives you the openness and the opportunity to do just about anything. That, that's what I find fascinating and fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. It seems like um, you're constantly changing and, um, I guess, evolving. Is that an intentional idea or goal? Yeah. Uh, it is, but not, not, not in any kind of... Um, uh, yeah, just out of curiosity to develop and to find new things and not, uh, I mean, if I've done something that's, that's, I have, I have researched that issue. I have studied that and I have dealt with it. And now I want to, I mean, it's, you know, I don't read the same book every day. 
for my entire life. You know, I've read that book. I get so it. So now, now, now it's time for something else. I and get it. I get it. That's, that's well. What do you think? What uh, What do you think challenges you now? I I don't think it's much, so much. I don't need a challenge. I don't. I'm just enjoying life. <laughs> and good to hear. And. Uh, I'm enjoying to. I'm. I'm trying to find what is what is um, rewarding and what what. Uh, uh, yeah, what what you can have, find pleasure in and and what is interesting and what is what is real. I think I think that is a, a key thing for me. Is 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 reality? Is is truth? Because so much that's going on in the in society and the world today is is fake. You know, and yeah. uh, and pretension and illusion and uh, and uh, trying to reach somewhere that doesn't even exist. Okay. How and, how has that yeah. how has that changed for you over over you know an amount of time? You know, the joy that you you are finding, or you know, the real. Well, it's. Uh, now it's it's in a sense easier than it was back in say back in the seventies or eighties. But back then it was much more real. Everything was much more real, and you and you encountered it in a real way. Now, uh, for instance, a lot of music that is being played is just um, people are trying to copy what what already happened. Yeah, you know, there, there's no uh, originality, and there's no and. Uh, and there is no themselves in it. Okay. It is like now I'm playing like this guy, and I'm the singer who sings like this, or I'm playing this kind of heavy metal or that kind of heavy metal. But but you know, Ozzy Osbourne didn't have a role model like that. You know, he just came out and did what he did, right. or or um, Led Zeppelin, or or. Uh, or Meshuga for that matter, or or Pantera. It just or Van Halen. Right. It's just like boom, 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 boom. Here you have like these these things that are, are totally unique. Yeah. But there's very little uniqueness now, and and it is very much about being famous, being successful. But there is no success because the music business has totally fallen apart. You know, there are no record deals. If people talk about record deals, they are. Delusional, <laughs> you know, you 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 making record companies and uh, that don't make records anymore, and that that's an absurdity in itself. But they all all connected to these streaming services that are just stealing people's money. Mm. You know, they're giving away music that uh, they are not paying for, and everybody's accepting it. And yeah, it, it's a t- it's a tough world, you know, and and um, so. I think everybody there needs to be a new punk movement and a new independence movement where people just do things and not think about okay I'm going to be be have five million likes on YouTube or or whatever. I agree with that one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That's good. And 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 I th- and I think 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 there are audiences for all kinds of stuff, and and if you don't go with the big platforms as they are called now uh, but uh, basically it's the big infrastructure what was the big record companies they were the ones owning the infrastructure to get records to the stores that is why they could rip you off 
but but they did not rip you off on 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 the scale that is happening now. And now the infrastructure is the internet. It's uh, it's that sort of delivery. So right. I think it, it might be the 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 value of music to a particular person has just changed from how it makes them feel to background noise to entertainment. So there are so many yeah. factors involved. Indeed, indeed, that that is true. But but what what we have become as as a culture, as a society, is um, everybody's doing the same thing. Right. You know. Right. If you're on if you're on Facebook, everybody's on Facebook. The trends. Yeah, and, but it, but they are so massive now. Like and and if you release a, a recording, for instance. You have to be on Spotify. And I say, no, I don't have to be on Spotify. Screw that. If you want my music and if you really are into it, then buy my CDs. That's it. You know, I'm not going to be on Spotify. And if if uh, if one million people do not know about me, well, poof, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, man. But but if but if I have a core audience, say that I have my, maybe uh, uh, five thousand people around the world who actually like what I'm doing uh -huh. and they buy my my CDs, that's a hell lot of more income than than having that's true. one million people listening to you on Spotify. So that's true. I don't need I don't need Spotify. I don't need YouTube. I don't need any of that. But how so, would you? So while we're on the subject, then you yeah. you've had a long successful career as a musician as yeah. as an artist as a bass player yeah. you worked with some of the top stars so you have yeah. a name so yeah. you don't necessarily need spotify but what about someone who's just starting out trying to make you know trying to get heard or get seen how would you recommend they don't have five thousand people that may see them so in this current state of of the music business how would you jonas helborg recommend that they go about it what is your advice well, to some I, of the young players? I've always said that it's not only what you do, but it's also what you don't do. Okay. You know, so you you don't put the mu don't put the music up where it's it's gonna not generate anything for you. Spotify is not gonna do anything for you unless you have some big machinery in 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 the background that can get you on all the playlists and all that, and then you're already screwed. I mean, it's like right. That is, that is not working for you. That is just feeding the machine that needs to be fed. But if, but if you say if you are a um, say that you're a, some sort of jazz musician, you play local gigs, you make records, you make CDs, you have them printed somewhere, and you sell them at the gigs, and you slowly build build your your following. I mean, just like, you know, just think about the neo hippies in uh, in uh, 20 years ago, this like neo hippie movement with fish and yeah. uh, leftover salmon and jam band thing. Yeah. That that also just came like that. People toured around and they they got some kind of gigs and before they got paid for playing gigs, they they roughed it a bit yeah. and and that, that's still valid. That, that kind of uh, kind of uh, well it's proof that that it does work for yeah, sure exactly for sure. exactly yeah. awesome well let's yeah. I, I this is something I'm not very familiar with but yeah. uh, you've studied and performed with some of the masters of Indian music um, 
What, yeah. what is that like? <laughs> I was listening. I was listening to some some different yeah. things today, and and I was just blown away. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But so, tell me about some of your experiences. Um, well, you, you know, it all it all comes from that same source that uh, I heard. Uh, I heard Mahavishnu, and uh, around the same time, I got into the obvious Indian musician, which is Ravi Shankar. Mm -hmm. And and from that I heard some more. And then I started playing with John, who had had insight into the Indian music, uh, of course, and also knew some of the greatest people. And and we had one gig in San Francisco where Sakir Hussain sat in with us, and he 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 played with me on my bass solo, which was unbelievable for me at the time. I mean, it is, he is unbelievable. And so I was uh, for a long time. Uh, interested and curious about about this music and as i had studied also western classical music and i knew that it was was interesting for me to learn what is the actual structure of this what what do what are they doing how is this music hanging together so i so i got into it and i studied it and i got to play with a few people that are are really good and and of course that is wonderful but it what for me what it does if i if i should simplify the way to look at it it adds a sort of a discipline a method to where westerners do not have it we have theory for say harmony mm -hmm. and we have a theory for for form for structure but we don't have a theory for melody Right. You know, yeah. you, when you learn music, you, there's no like, okay, when you make a melody, this is the principles you follow. The Indians do. And if you look at the rhythmical teaching of Western music, it's kind of primitive and unsophisticated. The North and South Indian schools of, of rhythm teaching is unbelievable. And it's also useful for Western music because it's, it is basically a method of understanding rhythm any kind of rhythm right and that's what i've been using it for i've been using that that influence to understand myself and my own music not to try to play indian music because that uh, i'm way too old for <laughs> for getting into seriously or, or already when i started encountering it I, you know you have to start when you're four or five years old if you're gonna if you're gonna do that convincingly so so that was never my intention but but there is information there that that can help Western musicians like like myself. Was it dis, uh, difficult to grasp the uh, different rhythmic concepts? Um, there is not not to understand it that, that um, because if you have a good teacher like I had, uh, Selva Ganesh, who plays with John. Okay. It, it can be taught and you understand it and you get it but what they can do is mind-boggling yeah you know how how they and that takes a lot of uh, a lot of practice and a lot of learning for instance you give them uh, say that you you have a, a form say that you have 64 bars or 128 bars and you give them a phrase a rhythmical phrase that is say uh, 11 and a half beats they can take that and develop it over that that whole structure and end on one with a logical development and conclusion and all that. 
And that is, that is because they study, study math when they learn to play. <laughs> How do, okay, so here you have, uh, you know, 128 bars times four, and you get the amount of beats that you have. How many ways can you subdivide this and... And so how many, if you, if you make, say that you throw in like three sevens, three nines and three twelves, what do you have left and how do you put it all together and how do you come in and how do you make musical sense of it and how do you end on one? Right. And how do you, and how do you keep, how do you keep track of what's going on? You know, that, and that, that's, uh, that, that's, that's mind boggling and that's yeah. hard to, yeah. to, uh, practically comprehend or, or say that you have you, you you're playing something and you keep time and you keep keep the the form the shape the the structure and then out of the of a quintuplet they change the tempo so they they do a quintuplet and then they subdivide that by four and create a new tempo on top of the old tempo and and there's one musician sitting there keeping the first tempo while the the guy is playing in a new tempo that is perfectly related and and, and attached to that but he, he's not only playing five over four subdivided in a different way but he also does the most amazing compositions on it and the guy who keeps time is actually almost even more mind-bogglingly <laughs> talented to do that yeah. while this is going on. So, so there you go. That, yeah, my, that, you, my, that, that's, that is hard to comprehend. My, my brain is probably going to explode if we speak about this any longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Man. Know, it is really awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about gear. Um, uh, you've been oh, an yeah. innovator in your gear choices, mm -hmm. designing mm -hmm. your own uh, acoustic bass guitar and bass amp and and mm -hmm. even strings. So let's talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit. What led you to create these very unique uh, products? Necessity. Ah, okay. You know, I, I just did not find what I needed. And, uh, and also looking at it and saying to myself, why is this like that and not like this? You know, if you take uh, amplification, for instance, I was in recording studios and and you know playing through the through the desk and listening to the big monitors and i say why can my bass not sound like that on stage you know yeah, so yeah. so so basically uh, then you you take it apart and you listen okay what what do i have in the studio that i don't have have live and then you design that and I, another thing was that i was looking at uh, the, the thing about my bass is is more the pickup than anything else and it was just the the fact that the normal bass pickup has uh, has very high um, inductance and very high capacitance mm -hmm. which is basically filtering okay which means that you don't have the whole uh, whole range of the whole frequency range and i wanted a, a pickup that had more actually sounded more acoustic in that sense but but not not like uh, you know compacted nasal kind of sound or no highs and no lows or or only lows and so so that led me to look into pickup design and see what one could do to to correct those issues and and when it comes to strings that is the same thing I I just observed things that uh, so why are E strings and even worse B strings so bloody dull. 
why is the you know you have a G string? It sounds like dang 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 very open and nice. You come to the E and B strings, they are boom, bob, or <laughs> you know kind of <laughs> hollow and weird sounding. So so I I I I developed some theories why that was, and actually I went to when I was developing my strings that I was making with DR. I went to Steinway in New York. And I talked to one of the guys who dealt with strings there. And he explained to me that... Uh, Steinway, the piano company. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. And the bass strings in the Steinway uh, grand pianos, particularly the concert grands, they are very long for, for a start, for instance, but they are also single wrapped. Okay. You know? Yeah. So, and I, and I figured then that, of course, if you, if you, in order to put weight on the string, if you put two wraps on the core... It gets very stiff, so it cannot uh, vibrate freely and, and create the right tone. So, so I went to the and said, how can we make a single rep uh, E string? Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, it's very difficult. It's almost impossible. So we had to, to experiment with, uh, with the uh, material in the wrap wire. And, uh, and that's how we came up with it. We found a very soft, uh, what's it, what is it called? Uh, um, <laughs> nickel, ah. pure, pure nickel wrap wire that, that we used, and that was that. And then, uh, of course, now I'm working with this Italian company, and we have uh, again approached these problems of stiffness in the strings in order to, to free up the low end and to the low frequencies and the openness of the overtones and all that. And that we do with a we use the same kind of core that you use for a cello string. Okay. You know, so we take, took the technology from classical string making and, and made bass strings out of it. And that, and it, that's also And it speaks on a, on a, a um, acoustic, because your bass is acoustic electric, right? It is, it is basically electric. My, my, my sound idea when I play is, it has always been very acoustic, but, uh, but it's to totally electric, and these are electric strings. It's not; uh, they work on acoustic uh, bass also. But yeah, uh, are you doing that but, with but, with only the uh, lower strings or all the strings? No, 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 all the all the strings. Oh, okay, it, it, it's uh, it's 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 quite an amazing string. If I can, I'm allowed to say it myself. <laughs> you definitely There's, are. You are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so, so we have both flat wounds actually, and and round wounds. Oh, great. Awesome. And uh, yeah, they are. How long did the uh, development process take for something like that? About, about three years. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's some time. Some, you put some yeah. time in. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We had we had made a lot of prototypes and tried a lot of different approaches. And uh, and uh, yeah. And, and they, we actually released them a year ago at the NAMM show. Oh, wait. Is it two years ago? No, wait. Where are we? They're one and a half years ago. Okay. Yeah. Who made who made them? DR or is that the Italian? No, the, the, the Italian company called Dugal. Okay, okay, awesome, very cool. Yeah. What uh, what are you looking forward to working on in the future, if anything? What are you what are you doing? Um, I have been because of pandemics and all, all this kind of stuff. I've been working on some some old recordings, and it's actually one recording I'm about to release now that I did with. With um, with Ginger and Bernie Worrell oh, in wow. eight, I think it was eighty six. 
and uh, that never got released. And I, I don't know why. It, it's, uh, I'm very happy with it. I'm, it's just a really nice album. And, and to have those two people playing together is, um, is, is exceptionally nice also. Are you going to put that and, out um, yourself or? Yeah, okay. yeah, through my, through my record company. Okay. And it's, uh, it's called The Concert of Europe is the record. Awesome. And, and uh, when do you hope that'll be out? In the fall, just after the summer. Everything is ready to go. It's just about getting it printed. I, I wanted actually to do it on vinyl first, release it on vinyl and then do CDs after a while, but it's impossible to get pressing time for vinyl. Yeah, yeah. They're... And it's very, it's very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but uh, CDs are fine. That's that's okay. Yeah. Well, Jonas, I, I, we appreciate you jumping on the Bass Freak podcast very much. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank a, you for having me. You're a wealth of ideas and uh, inspiration. Uh, thank you for listening to the Bass Freaks podcast. Stay healthy, spread love, spread joy, kindness, good vibes, and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. Until next time, cheers. And a huge thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. Make sure you check out the Bass Freaks podcast wherever you get your podcasts.